Okay, let's continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. In this session, we're going to look at Colossians 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. This is another one of those places where the chapter break is unfortunate, because really it's one unit of thought that goes together that spans the chapter break between chapters 1 and chapter 2. And we said in our introduction to uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and following, that from chapter 1, verse 3 down through 2, 5, what Paul's really doing is, in a lot of ways, establishing connection with the church there in Colossae and uh, building some rapport and introducing himself and his ministry to them because he had never been there. He didn't start this church. And so he's going to introduce himself to them in these regards. This is the last major part of that self-introduction to them. And here in this section, Paul really turns to introducing his ministry in particular to them. And so in 1, 3 through 8, he was telling them how he was thanking God for them. In 1, 9 through 23, he tells them uh, how he's been praying for them and how that relates to the really the magnificence of Jesus. Here in 124, now he begins to talk about his ministry and the purpose of his ministry and the goal of his ministry in particular. And so the way we get there is this. In, in the previous section, in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul has reminded them of their reconciliation to God in Christ, and he's called them to remain true and faithful to Jesus and to the gospel. And then he says that very gospel is the, the gospel of which he himself, Paul, has been made a minister or a servant. And that then becomes a springboard for him to talk about his ministry. And that's what we have here beginning in verse 24. Since they've never met him personally, and since they, he didn't start their church, but one of his co-workers in ministry did, he wants them to know how invested he is in their well-being and what his ministry really is all about. And so here's the way this section works that we're going to look at. It has two parts, 124 through 29 describes Paul's ministry in general. So 124 through the end of the chapter, here's Paul's ministry in general and how he kind of thinks about it in general terms. And then in 2, 1 through 5, Paul then takes his ministry and says how that ministry relates to the Colossians. All right, so those are the two chunks. Um, Paul's ministry in general and how that ministry relates to the Colossians. In a nutshell, this section answers this question. What's Paul's ministry all about? What is his ministry really dealing with? How does he view his ministry? What is Paul's ministry all about? And the answer in a sentence that he gives is this. Paul says, my ministry is all about struggling and suffering, joyfully nonetheless, but struggling and suffering so that others can be firmly established in Christ. That's That includes you, O Colossians, right? That's, that's really what he's getting at. His ministry is about struggling and suffering joyfully so that others, the Colossians included, can be firmly established in Christ. That is what this section is all about in a nutshell. All right, so with that, let's jump into the details of this section. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 24, these words. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
That's his introduction to talking about this ministry, and that introduction raises all sorts of interesting questions for us to consider and think through as we try to understand what he's getting at. Notice how he begins. He says, now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And it's really important to notice how Paul views this. Even though he didn't start this church, and he isn't the one that preached the gospel to them, he views them as a part of his ministry because one of his co-workers, whom he taught and instructed, is going out and teaching them and instructing them. And so he views them under the umbrella of his ministry and the things he has suffered in his ministry, the things he currently is suffering by being in prison, um, is really for their sake, on their behalf. He's embodying the very same approach to his life that Jesus had, where he lays down his life for the sake of others. That in itself is important. He says he rejoices in that. Not only that, he says in verse 24, he, he goes on and says, And in my flesh I do my share, so he does his part, on behalf of his body, which is the church. And so Paul says, In my flesh I do my part on behalf of Jesus' body, namely the church. This next phrase is the challenging one. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We need to pause and say, okay, what does he mean by that? Paul, in some way, views his ministry and the sufferings, particularly of his ministry, um, as like filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, what does he mean exactly by that? Well, there's two ways to understand the phrase afflictions of Christ. And the way we understand that phrase will, will radically affect the way we interpret what Paul is saying. And so we could take that phrase, afflictions of Christ, and say, afflictions which Christ suffered. That would be grammatically one possible way to understand that. So he does his share in filling up uh, what is lacking in the afflictions that Christ suffered. In fact, that is the kind of dominant Roman Catholic view that... Um, great saints like the Apostle Paul, that their suffering in some sense contributes to the redemptive effects of Jesus' suffering. In some sense, they contribute to this overall pool of merits idea that therefore uh, helps provide really redemptive benefits to God's people, the church. That's the Catholic view. Frankly, I don't see that view anywhere else in the New Testament. I don't see that view making a whole lot of sense of the sufficiency of Christ's death, that people are, um, they are atoned, their sins are redeemed, and not by what other people suffer, but by what Jesus himself suffered. That seems to be pretty clear in the New Testament. So I don't think that's the best view. The, the Protestant has, kind of some Protestants have had their own version of this, though, that when we take the phrase afflictions of Christ, it means the things that Christ suffered. And so kind of a Protestant version of that is that, well, Paul is doing his part to fill up what's lacking in the things that Jesus suffered. Well, what is it lacking in? Oh, well, it's lacking in proclamation, some have said. It needs to be proclaimed so that people know it. And so Paul's doing his part in proclaiming the message about the things that Jesus suffered. And um, I've heard that kind of preached over and over again. I think both of these views, however, the Roman Catholic view uh, and the Protestant view, in, in, in spite of the fact I think there's other theological problems with the Roman Catholic view, the Protestant view at least makes a little bit of sense of, yeah, I could kind of see that. But here's the real problem with both of them. The real problem is that the word translated affliction, philipsis in Greek, 
that word is never used anywhere in the New Testament for the things that Christ suffered, for Christ's redemptive sufferings, for his dying on the cross to pay the price for people's sins. That word thalipsis is just never used for it. Um, and so that's a real problem for understanding that phrase to refer to Christ's redemptive suffering. Not only that, in context, Paul is actually focusing more on his own sufferings and saying somehow it, it contributes to the afflictions of Christ. And so I think maybe we need to, to rethink how we understand the phrase afflictions of Christ. So grammatically, how else could that phrase be understood? Well, grammatically, that phrase afflictions of Christ could also be understood as afflictions directed at Christ or afflictions that come in connection with Christ. And I think this view makes more sense of it. And so it's not uh, the things that Christ suffered. It's afflictions that come in connection with Christ because of Christ directed at Christ. And this makes, I think, the most sense of both what Paul is saying specifically in this context and of Paul's overall thought world as a first century Jew. Among the Jews of Paul's day, there was this whole idea of the messianic sufferings or the messianic woes, as sometimes it's described, that um, in the kind of in connection with the coming of the Messiah, there were going to be great sufferings and afflictions that would come upon the world as part of this turning of the tide from the old age to the new age. Well, Paul and his uh, contemporaries, apostolic contemporaries like Peter and John being Jews, had that as part of their thought world. Now that Jesus has come, they believe he's the Messiah. He's already been crucified, resurrected, and the Spirit has been poured out. All evidence that we've entered into the time period of the Messiah. Um, and that means that now the time period of the Messiah is overlapping with the present age that's, that's fading away. And so they, they, they had this idea that so they are experiencing the messianic woes, the sufferings of the messianic age, the turning of the tide from the old age to the new age has now, is now being experienced. And so they could speak of the afflictions of the Messiah, meaning things that, that are coming upon this world, things that the Messiah's people are experiencing because of their connection with him and because of his, his work to redeem all things. And so for the apostles like Paul, this idea remains, even though maybe it's understood slightly differently than Jews of his day, because they believed that the Messiah had come and they believed that there was this great overlap of the ages between the old age and the age of the Messiah, it still remained. And so they had this idea that um, those who uh, suffer in Christ are experiencing the sufferings of the Messiah, the messianic sufferings, because they're connected with him as his body, as Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1. Now, that's kind of a lot of, of background, but I think it's really important for us to understand this. And so that when you read through other New Testament passages, you'll see the same sort of thing that Paul is talking about here. So, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for just as the, catch it, sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so the comfort of Christ is also ours in abundance through, through Christ himself. And so there's that phrase, the sufferings of Christ. And it's this idea that uh, Christ's people, the Messiah's people, are going to experience suffering on his behalf because of their connection with him. And I really think that's what Paul has in mind here in Colossians chapter 1. 
Well, okay then, if that's the case, what does he mean by fill up what is lacking in those things? Well, it's not 100% clear what he means by that, but it's, it's certainly clear here in Colossians 1 that Paul seems to think that he is trying to take as much of the sufferings of God's people that are necessary for them to suffer in the Messiah as possible. It seems to be that's what he has in mind. And that makes sense, too, of other things we see in the New Testament, where there seems to be this idea that uh, there is there is sort of like a finite amount of suffering that God's people in Christ are going to experience before God says enough is enough and sends Jesus to return and makes all things new. You actually see that in a very picturesque way in Revelation chapter 6 where you have these martyrs uh, under the altar and John sees this vision of these martyrs who are crying out for vindication and uh, God finally replies to their cry and he says, Wait a little bit longer until everything that is needed to suffer is accomplished. Well, that seems to be the same idea that Paul has in mind, is that everything that needs to suffer, that there's a finite limit to this. There's going to be an end point where God says, okay, enough is enough, and he is going to send Jesus back to restore all things and judge all mankind. And that seems to be what Paul has in mind. And so what Paul seems to be saying here, his point seems to be this, that whatever is necessary for Christians to suffer on account of Christ, Paul does his share to fill that up on behalf of the church. He wants to draw as much of the focus and as much of the suffering onto himself um, so that he can in himself begin to fill up whatever is necessary for Christians to suffer on behalf of Jesus. And my reaction to that is this. Man, what a example, what a model of self-giving love that Paul is demonstrating to the Colossians and to us by saying that, that he wants to do his part to make it easier on others, even if it's harder on him to fill up whatever that amount of suffering is that's necessary because of Christ. Man, what a what an example of self-giving, self-sacrificial love on behalf of Jesus and his body and for us. And so, Paul views his ministry as really contributing to this overall suffering that is necessary for God's people. And then he goes on and says this. He says, of this church, I was made a minister or a servant. We hear the word minister. We think of the official role of somebody employed by the church who works vocationally for the church. The word just means servant. And so, of this church, I was made a servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me uh, for your benefit. Stewardship from God means the sacred trust, the responsibility. The word was used of managers and a responsibility that was entrusted to people to manage other people. So what he's saying is God has given him this, he's entrusted him with this responsibility to kind of be be a, a key servant within his church for your benefit. Um, and so he says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And so his goal is to fulfill, not even fully carry out, the word literally just says fulfill, that I might fulfill the word of God, fulfill the message, fulfill everything that God's word as a power going forth into the world, trying to bring God's new creation into reality. He wants to fulfill that. Um, and then he describes in verse 26 the word of God this way. He says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. And so he 
It seems like this word mystery actually shows up quite a bit in Colossians and in Ephesians, a sister letter to Colossians. And so my suspicion is it was language that was being used in and around in their context that Paul wanted to kind of now, make sure they understood clearly from a Christian perspective. And so it's not like some secret knowledge that you have to struggle to find. He says, this mystery, which had hints and clues in the past ages and generations, meaning that the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament writers gave hints and clues of what God was going to do. But now in Christ, in what God actually did in Jesus, it has been manifested, has been made clear, it's been revealed to his saints. And we've already said that saints means his people. So to his faithful people, to whom, verse 27, so to his people, God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Paul says that this idea of making this mystery clear, this was God willed it. God wanted to make it known. It wasn't like you had to you know, coerce God into making it known. God wanted everyone to know what he was up to. So God willed to make known. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? Not only that, God wanted to make it known among the Gentiles, and that means uh, non-Jews, right? Gentiles are anyone who's not a Jew. And so uh, in the Jews and the Gentiles, there was great tension between them in the first century, and Paul's wanting us to know that it was God's desire, God's plan to reveal the mystery, what he has accomplished in Jesus among the Gentiles. Among the, the nations, the word Gentiles is sometimes translated nations. So among all the nations of the world, what is the heart, soul, what is the essence of this mystery that God has revealed? Well, Paul says at the end of verse 27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of inheriting the glory of God. And so Christ dwelling in you and among you to do his work and to carry out his plans, Christ being formed in you and his character being formed in you. That's the heart of this, that Christ now has come to live in you. And so Paul then in verse 28 and 29 really gives almost like a, a summary mission statement for his ministry. He says, we proclaim him. This is what we're all about. We proclaim him. We proclaim Christ. That's a good word for all of us who teach and preach the Bible, that ultimately what we're supposed to teach and preach is Jesus. Everything should point to Jesus. That's the focal point of uh, Paul's ministry should be the focal point of ours. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Uh, admonishing has the idea of warning and setting straight things that are out of whack, right? So correcting false ideas and then teaching every man, teaching the truth, teaching positive ideas. And so we admonish every man and we teach every man with all wisdom. Notice all the emphasis on all and every, every man, every man, all wisdom. He, Paul wants to say, we do this for everybody we can come in contact with, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. And here's the goal of Paul's ministry, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so Paul says, this is the heart and soul what I'm about is I want to try to draw as many people as I can into Jesus. And then in Jesus, I want them to grow to maturity. I want them to become whole, complete, mature human beings in Jesus. That's the heart of his ministry. And so Paul's ministry wasn't purely about conversions. It was about moving people from uh, incomplete you know, human beings outside of Jesus, not knowing what it is to truly be a human being and moving them to maturity in Christ, completeness in Christ. And so he says in verse 29, 
for this purpose also. I labor. Uh, that's the idea of working hard. I toil with great effort, striving according to his very power, which works mightily within me. And so Paul carries out his ministry to this end with great effort, with, with toil, with suffering, with hardship, but he does so according to God's very own power, which he says works mightily within me. I love the balance that Paul models here for us, and I like the way N.T. Wright really describes and summarizes that balance. Let me read to you this, these words from N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians. He says this, Paul doesn't go about his work half-heartedly, hoping vaguely that grace will fill in the gaps which he is too lazy to work at himself. Nor, however, does he imagine that it's all up to him, so that unless he burns himself out with restless, anxious toil, nothing will be achieved. He knows that God's desire is to bring Christians to maturity, and that God has called him to have a share in that work. He can therefore work hard without the stressful motivation of either pride or fear. He thus becomes an example of that maturity, both human and Christian, that seeks under God to produce in others. And that's a good balance for us to keep in mind, that we don't have to burn ourselves out with fearful anxiety. I got to get this done. I got to make this happen. I want to, you know, and we don't have to be lazy and just say, well, you know, let go and let God. There's a balance of working hard and trusting God and working according to the strength that God provides. And that's how Paul carries out his ministry as he describes it here in chapter one. Now, in uh, verses uh, one through five of chapter two, Paul now shifts from just describing his ministry in general and saying how that pertains to, how that relates to the Colossians themselves. And so Paul writes in chapter two, verse one, he says, for, notice it starts with his logical connective. He's, he's applying this, he's taking this and connecting it directly to the Colossians situation. So for, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my faith. And so he has described generally in 24 through 29 that his ministry involves suffering and difficulty and hardship and labor and striving. And now he says, and I want you to know that that, that really pertains to you too there in Colossae, even though I've never met you. Uh, I have a great struggle on your behalf, for your sake, for your well-being, because I, I care for you. I don't have to be there. I don't even have to met you face to face. But your well-being in Jesus, you're growing in the faith. Man, that matters to me. And so I have a great struggle on your behalf for that. Not only for you, he says in verse 1, but for those who are at Laodicea, a neighboring town a few miles away from Colossae. And he says, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. And that's how we know Paul hasn't been there. Paul hasn't met them. They haven't personally seen his face. Neither have those at Laodicea, some of the neighboring towns to Colossae. And so he says, I have this great struggle on your behalf. And then verse two, he, he just kind of describes what that struggle is all about. That their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in, in love and unto all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. All right, boatload in that sentence. Let's just clarify a few things. He says his struggle ultimately is that their hearts may be encouraged. The idea of encouraged is strengthened, established, right? Like made strong. And so he wants their hearts, which is really the control center of their being, to made, be made strong. And then he says, having been knit together in love, 
And then he talks about attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding. I want to suggest a, a, a different translation of that phrase, having been knit together in love. I'm not so sure that's the best translation. There's one word that lies behind the English phrase, knit together, um, or in the NIV, united together. This idea, this word is sumbabidzo in Greek, fun word, right? Sumbabidzo. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word sumbabidzo is always translated instruction. And in fact, we see it translated that way elsewhere in the New Testament. In fact, in Paul's writings, we see it translated um, as instruction. And so I think maybe it makes most sense for us to understand it as instruction here because of his emphasis on full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge. We're aiming in that direction. Here's the way the sentence would read if we translate Sumba Bidso the way it typically has been translated. It would be this, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been instructed in love and all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery. That makes a lot of sense to me that what we're talking about is they're being instructed in God's love and how to love people the way God told them to love and that they are being instructed in all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery. We're clearly talking about understanding and knowledge in the following phrase that clearly fits with being knit together in the preceding phrase or being instructed as I think is a better translation. And so what Paul says, my struggle for you there in Colossae and for Laodicea and all of them met me is that you guys would know that you would be instructed in true love, the real love of God and the kind of love that you ought to have for each other. Um, and you would be instructed in all the wealth that comes really from a full conviction of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery. Well, what's a true knowledge of God's mystery? What's the heart of that? We heard it earlier when he said Christ in you. And here we have it again. Christ himself, that the, the centerpiece of God's mystery is Christ himself. I want you to have a true knowledge of Jesus himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to really understand life, if you really want to understand this world, if you really want to understand history and the future and where the world is going, Paul says the centerpiece of that, the hub of that is Jesus himself because he's the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge. He, in, in him are hidden all the wisdom and knowledge. So if you've got Jesus, you have the centerpiece of God's mystery. You have the true treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to go looking everywhere else. So be fully instructed in that. Be fully convinced of that. That's what he's working for, struggling for, laboring for there at Colossae. And then he ends this section, verses 4 and 5, by saying, I say this so that no one will delude you by persuasive argument. Again, I think that even leads more credence to understanding Paul talking about instructing in, in the preceding section. He's, he says, I, I, I'm saying this because it's important to me that no one's going to lead you astray by persuasive argument. Just by 
maybe clever rhetoric, right? And that's the idea This deludes you with persuasive argument. It's like, oh, they can talk a good talk. They can use clever rhetoric. They can spin a good argument, but they don't have the truth. And so I'm telling you that this struggle I have for you is because I want to make sure you're rooted and grounded in the truth. And you're not going to be led, led astray by anybody that sounds nice, talks a good talk, spins a good argument, but doesn't really know the truth of Jesus. For he says in verse 5, For even though I'm absent from you in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, maybe even I'm with you by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline, your good order is the idea, that your well-ordered, well-structured life of faith. I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And that's what Paul is laboring for. And so Paul says, my ministry is all about helping people be complete in Christ. And I have that same struggle for you there in Colossae, Laodicea, and elsewhere, that you too would be founded and rooted and established in Jesus. So let's just offer a few reflections or a few implications that might be helpful to us as we try to take this text and say, what, what's the significance for us today? The first thing I would draw out of this text that I think is incredibly important for us to hear is the centrality of Jesus to Paul's life and ministry. He is his ministry embodies the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Uh, his, his ministry is all about uh, laying down his life for the sake of others for the sake of Jesus. And so he's actually trying to live a Christ-shaped and cross-shaped life like Jesus did. And that really sets a powerful example for us to, to live the same sort of way, for Jesus to be so central to our life and for our heart and our soul and our character to be so formed after Jesus that our life is cross-shaped. Our life is Christ-shaped, that we lay down our life for others like Jesus laid down his life for us. And that's really, really clear throughout this, that that's the way Paul views his life and his work and his service. Not only that, Jesus is central to Paul's life and ministry in the sense that it's all about making Jesus known and helping people become mature in Christ, complete in Christ, and that he wants people to understand that um, Christ is the centerpiece of God's work, God's purposes, God's will, God's plan, that he is the, the hub of the mystery of God, which is the now revealed in Jesus. And so Jesus is the, the, the centerpiece of that. He is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge. And so Paul's life, Paul's ministry is shaped after Jesus, formed by Jesus. It's about promoting Jesus. And what would it look like for you and for me to live that way so that we are in whatever sphere of influence we have, our life looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, smells like Jesus, right? Points people towards Jesus so that Jesus is the hub of that. And that's very much at the heart of what Paul says his life is like here. And secondly, the thing I would want to draw out of this is for those of us who are involved in any sort of Christian service, whether it's being a paid preacher or pastor at a church or maybe a volunteer church leader or teacher, notice what Paul says really is the goal of his ministry is to present every person complete in Christ. May we think about our work that way. What does it look like to labor and to strive to help people be mature in Christ, to work for 
their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ so that we're really helping people be rooted and grounded in Jesus. That the goal is not just to gather a crowd or to run a religious organization or to put on Christian programs. The goal is to do all of that towards a specific direction, which is to help people grow to maturity in Christ so they can be the mature, complete human beings that God has called them to be. And so may we imitate Paul and live lives that are Christ-shaped, cross-shaped, and are really helping people grow to maturity in Jesus, pointing people to him in everything we say and do.